Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Good morning, good evening, or good night, you little lovelies of mine. Thanks for swinging on by for part two of the Dime Magazine story. Now, this episode, I'll only be doing an intro to keep it brief because right now, it's pouring down outside like crazy. And I'm sort of worried that I'll lose power if anything gets knocked over, just like it's done in the past. So, no outro, but I'll jump straight to it. This is a continuation of Soft Blows The Breeze From Hell, with the finale being next week Wednesday. I will take time though to thank my marvellous Patreon supporters, my amazing, jaw-dropping Odenite Titan Maya. You push this podcast into overdrive, thank you so much. My two epic white tea warlords, Ion Cows and Lee Bauer, and my Elgrey Enforcers, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yocone, Tea Time Drinker One, Chris Moller, and Solstra. Thank you so much, all of you. Lastly, before I get this episode going and uploaded, I'll be returning next Wednesday, back to my normal thing. But there won't be an episode this Friday or Monday, as I'll be preparing, and recovering, from my wedding over the weekend. Thank you to all of you who send me such lovely emails. Lots of love right back at check, you brilliant people. Now, turn up the lights, turn up the sound, and let's listen to a Dime Magazine Mystery Mates. And till next, we meet. Chapter 3 The Third Puffball Hal Curtin was abruptly aware that somehow he had struggled far down toward that screen, dragged there perhaps by his stunned, unthinking search for the source of the love. He must have clambered up over the worst of the wreckage, for there was little here. The seats were empty, open exit doors, showing where those who had occupied these seats and still were able to move had gone. Behind him was the terrible clamor of disaster and rescue, Ahead of him, that shadow on the screen, and on the stage-like narrow platform, just before the screen, the thing that cast it. It danced its evil rigadoon, laughing. <laughs> Curtin vented an incoherent shout, threw himself down the aisle. His weaponless fingers were clawed, his throat swollen with the terrible anger that possessed him. Beneath his tongue was the salt-sweet taste of blood. He passed the final seat row, glanced up at the high right of the stage front close before him, jumped for its summit. His hands caught the platform edge, clung. The momentum of his leap carried his torso high enough so that he could straighten his arms, get a toehold, lift and come erect on the little stage. He was alone on it. The laughter had vanished. Dazzled by the reflection from the screen's silver surface, Curtin started to turn. The flooring went from beneath his feet. He dropped, plummet-like into darkness. There is no consciousness of time in a sudden fall, only marrow-freezing terror. A split second of many minutes might have elapsed before Hal crashed on solid support. Jarred, half-dazed, he contrived to flail gritty hands, already fisted to fight whatever it was that had trapped him. He was on his feet, surprisingly, 
he was on his feet. Surprisingly, a black shape loomed in the blackness before Curtin could move. There was a click. Yellow light. Redden gasped. His hand on a switch panted. What is it? What happened in the theater? I heard a crash from my office, ran out the back way, through the alley and in here. Metal armored cables twisted reptilian in the confined space, undulated upward to black cone-like objects over Gast's head. What happened, Hal? You look... Hal realized they were loudspeakers behind the screen. This was the chamber beneath it, where they were adjusted. That fall of Hal's had brought him only level with the theater floor. Happened? He gasped. Enough. But did you see anyone come out here? A man, like a huge ape. Ape? The realtor stared at him, his eyes widening as though with doubt of the other's sanity. No, of course not. No one passed me. <coughs> What's that? A woman's wail pent with excruciating suffering came through the overhead aperture through which Hal had fallen. What's going on in there? The balcony fell. The answer came absently without intonation. Hundreds of children killed. Great Jupiter! Gas lurched past Curtin, was heaving up a vertical iron ladder that came down from the trap door through which the lawyer had fallen. The rest of that afternoon was a blur to Curtin. Afterwards, he had a dim memory of helping to lift great beams, of carrying limp and moaning small forms tenderly in his arms of laying lifeless bodies in a lengthening, terrible row. He was not quite clear-minded again till he found himself in the kitchen of Hilda's home on Blossom Street, weariness, a dull ache in his muscles and his bones, his brain a boil of dark and dreadful thoughts, black as the night pressing against the unshaded windows. Eat this, darling, Hilda was saying. Look, I made it for you just the way you like it. Only white meat, nice crisp lettuce, and plenty of mayonnaise. And here's iced tea. You must eat or you'll be sick. He looked up at her from his chair at the kitchen table. You made it, he said dully. Where's Ethel? The girl smiled through the glimmer of tears in her eyes. I told you, she answered with tender patience. That Ethel went to the hospital where her little brother is, and that dad and mother are out seeing what they can do to help the widow Simpson, whose son and daughter both were killed this afternoon. Yes, her lover muttered, yes, yes, I remember. Because Hilda seemed to want it so much, he reached for the dainty plate she had prepared. His sleeve brushed a crumpled newspaper on the table, the lurid headlines leaped from the page at him. Forty killed. Scores hurt in theater crash. Balcony collapse blamed on lax inspection. Gast accused President Wayne to weakness. Link's failure to find cause of Blossom Street fire. And demands thorough investigation. Gast accuses? Curtin exclaimed, jumping to his feet. Gast demands! He stared, wild-eyed, at the startled girl. But it was Gast who was in the sound room. Gast who said he saw no one come out of it. 
I've got it, Hilda. By God, I've got it. And I'm going to stop it. He whirled, was running through the dining room, was through the hall and out on the porch. He was in his roaster parked outside and was pounding his heel on the starter. The car jumped away from the curb, roared off, roared past the blackened ruins of the house where five had been seared to death, past houses still standing that were blackened with heart-rending grief or with an anguish of doubt more poignant than mourning. Last night, Hal Curtin thought, little children were laughing inside those houses. Laughing! Twice he had heard another kind of laugh. How did that fit into the dark pattern that had formed in his mind? He twisted his wheel, changing his course. To fill out that pattern, there was a bit of information he must obtain, and Mark Yarrow would have it for him. The little druggist was the village gossip. The loungers in the pharmacy were pallid tonight, their faces sultry with recollection of the scenes they had witnessed not long since. There was little talk from their tight-lipped mouths, but what there was, was of John Wayne, and how he had failed them. I've got a hunch there's plenty more due to happen, someone said. The way the town's gone to rack and ruin lately, I got a feeling in my bones, this ain't the last. Cut it, Bill! Another protested. Ain't we got enough to think about? But the first speaker had voiced the sense of impending doom, the prescient of further disaster that brooded over all Stelton. Ancestral fears were revived tonight in the morning town, inchoate as they might have been in the souls of their ancestors. The gods were wroth with them and prepared their destruction. The gods must be appeased by a human sacrifice, and that sacrifice was ready to their hand. I say we all ought to go up to John Wayne and... The sentence was interrupted by the entrance of Hal Curtin. Disheveled, his eyes burned out coals in a yeasty mask. He strode stiff-legged through them. He shouldered them aside from his path and none took offense because it was so evident he did not know he had done so. He went straight back through the store, past the end of the counter that closed off its public space, through the swinging door in the petition behind it. Mark Yarrow, dapper in a white half-smock, looked up from the pills he was rolling to see the apparition stride into his prescription room. Before his indignation at the intrusion could find more expression than a pursing of his lips, a hand had clutched his collar and thick words were choking off his own utterance. Mark, Curtin demanded, tell me, has Red Gast any connection with the county madhouse? He gasped. Yes, he's on the board and he's leased the place to the county. That's one of his little graphs. Why? He was left with the question unfinished, his mouth gaping like a powder fish. How Curtin had wheeled away and was gone. God, he heard an exclamation from outside. What's eating you? And then the hammer of heels across the floor out there was ended, to be succeeded an instant later by the thrrr of an auto-starter and the clash of gears, viciously meshed. The night seemed darker to Hal Curtin, and more foreboding, as he catapulted through the village, retracing his course. A block from Hilda's he braked again, sat for a minute with clenched hands, with lips biting hard on one another. He must, he must get control of himself, must speak coherently, convincingly. 
that which he was about to say would be difficult enough to get across without the impediment of its being said by one who looked as if he were on the brink of madness. Mark Yarrow's expression had told him what he looked like. There was a comb somewhere in his pocket. He fumbled for it, used it. He adjusted his tie, straightened his coat. These small actions helped to reduce the fever in his blood, the pound in his temples. Now he could trust himself. He got out of the roadster, walked quite slowly up the path that had led through a garden to the colonial entrance of a small but somehow stately white house. He read the names in letters of wrought iron set in the weathered board of the door. John Wayne. His hand did not tremble as he lifted the door knocker and rapped once with it. The door opened more quickly than he had expected. It was Wayne himself who opened it. The sight of his countenance, ashen, haggard, the visage of an almost senile agent now, and not that of gracious age, undid all how Curtin had accomplished with himself. Mr. Wayne, he blurted, I've come to tell you. I know who's behind what's happening in town. I've seen... Something flared into Wayne's sunken eyes, something that silenced Curtin more surely than the old man's. Wait a minute, Hal. Come here. And then there was another voice from behind Wayne. Looks like I'd better cut my good night short, John. Well, we understand each other, don't we? The old man turned. To redden gassed. Yes, he said. Yes, Redden, I understand. Thank you for coming. There were shaking hands. Gasp was passing curtain with a curt nod. Did Hal imagine it? Or was there dark flame in the pouch under laid eyes that caught his own briefly? Flame of a hellish hate. What was he doing here? Curtin croaked. What did he want? Wayne smiled wearily. He came to apologize for what he said to the Gazette reporter. He was excited. Didn't mean it. He does not honestly blame me for the fire and the accident. And he's going to make a statement tomorrow retracting what he said today. After the damage is done, Curtin commented bitterly. After he set Stalton against you, as he planned from the beginning, you're through now. They'll demand your resignation. And some creature of his will be elected, which is exactly why he's done what he has. He wants that highway and the fortune it means for him. And he stopped at nothing to get. Not even at murder. John Wayne took a step backward into the open doorway. One almost transparent hand lifted as if to ward off an attack. What? The old man whispered. What do you mean? Just that. Gas is responsible for the fire on Blossom Street, for the collapse of the theatre balcony, and if those are not enough, he's ready to perpetrate another outrage. All this to discredit you. To get you out of the way. You're... you're upset, my boy. What you say is impossible. Those were accidents. The hell there were accidents? Look! The words were trembling out of Curtin's mouth now. The words that had been pounding in his skull. If that house were filled with lycopodium, a haze of fine powder, 
no one would have noticed. If a match was struck, it would have blazed up all at once the way it did. A very little dynamite placed under the supporting pillars of a theater balcony would have brought it down. Gast had access to dynamite. He's blasting foundations for that office building on Apple Street, and he could have... What are you saying? I've known Redden for years. Gast couldn't. No. Not Gast with his own hands, but Gast in the person of some madman he released from the asylum. I've seen him. I'd know him anywhere. I saw him in the theater and he got away. I saw him before that on the roof of the burning house. Saw him leap from the telephone wires just before the final burst of flames came. And dropped to the ground. I almost caught him that time. But would have if there hadn't been someone with him who clouted me. Hell! Wayne interrupted. That's it! You were hurt more badly than you thought when you fell that night. And your experience today finished the job. Go home. Get some sleep. Tomorrow you'll be rid of these wild ideas. I can prove it to you, I can. I'm almost certain. Show you the madman. I've got an idea where he's hiding. Those puffballs that have been appearing just before each thing happens can come only from Rogetz's wood. He brings them. That's where his lair is. We'll organize a posse and go there and capture him, and that will prove my ideas aren't as wild as you think. Yes, yes, I know. They seem so logical now. But after you've slept, you'll see how fantastic they are. Look, I'll go get my hat and take you home. Wait here. The door shut between them, as if the old man were frightened of his visitor and wished a solid barrier for protection. Oh, God! Curtin groaned, his hands fisting at his sides. God help me. God help Stoughton. He turned to go back to his roaster, some idea of running back to Yarrow's of telling his tale to the men there, beginning to form in his desperation. On the sidewalk, bounding along with a noiseless swiftness now terrible to him, was a puffball. It shot by, went on up the street. Something more was about to happen. Some new terror was coming to one of the houses on Blossom Street. Hilda Mead's house was in the direction the puffball fled. Was that the house that was marked for doom? Chapter 4 The Dark Cloak's Death Hal Curtin was running, but it seemed to him he made no progress at all along that quiet street. That as in a nightmare, the faster he ran, the more firmly was he rooted to the spot where he was. And always fifty feet before him bounded that pallid bit of fluff he could not overtake. Though overtaking it meant so terribly much. Abruptly it veered, as he'd seen too exactly like it veer. It was Hilda's gate, open as himself had left it, through which the thing had darted. It was Hilda's garden pathway up which it scuttered. Hilda's porch steps it struck to puff out of existence in a grey swirl of spore dust. As he flung himself up the path, icy terror gelled Hal Curtin's veins. But nothing happened. The structure that housed the girl he loved did not burst into flame, did not collapse, did not, as he half expected, vanish 
as the puffball had in a swirl of grey smoke. He gasped with relief as he leapt the porch steps, seized the doorknob, jerked the portal open, and flung through into the foyer that had known the kisses and the whisperings of so many lingering good nights, and gasped again with terror, finding himself in black darkness, even the street lamp lit, light close behind, blotted out. This was not merely the absence of light, this was blackness that swallowed sight, which swallowed reality itself and left nothing but terror. This was the black fog that had filled the house up the road just before the lurid flames had made it a roaring furnace. The fog that had swirled out of the theater auditorium just before its balcony had crashed. Now, it was here, and somewhere within it was... Hilda! Her name burst from Hal Curtin's clamped throat. Hilda! There was no answer. Hilda! His cry was quenched by vacant silence, by the muffled hush of doom. Was there, somewhere ahead, the faint shadow of a laugh? Of a chattering, mad laugh? Ahead, from the kitchen where he had left Hilda, there was a glow, vague, vertical and narrow. It was light, blessed light, seeping past the edge of the kitchen door. Curtain's footfalls made hollow, empty echoes in the empty house. He flung into the kitchen, the lighted kitchen, halted. No Hilda, not even her body, as he had feared. Dead in some awful way, no. No sign of her at all. But the table at which he had sat was overturned. A chair was smashed by a struggle, a fragment of her flowered dress caught in its splinters and the black door swung open to the mystery of the night. That was all. The table, the chair, the door. Not quite all, actually. There was something chalked on the scribbled white tile of the floor. Letters scrawled crudely in crimson chalk and obscured by the breakfast cloth that had slid from the table. Hal Curtin twitched the grey cloth away. He read the message. Curtain, you keep your damn mouth shut if you want to see her again, is what it wrote. He stood there, looking at it, the tablecloth trailing from his clenched hand, his mouth working. He had brought this upon her. He, his damn mouth, blurting a warning to Red and Gast, not waiting to ascertain that he was alone with Wayne, giving Gast time to hasten here and... How had Gast dared? If he'd been seen entering or found here when Hilda's parents returned. It was not Gast who'd enter here, not Gast. A clearing of Curtin's vision had revealed to him something more caught in the splintered end of that chair rung, that the bit torn from Hilda's dress. Not very much, just a wisp of black hair, of short hairs, black and coarse and kinked. It was not Redden Gast who held Hilda Mead prisoner, but Gast's tool. His mad creature who had capered into the midst of horror, laughing a weird and insane laugh. That was worse, far worse. A madman knows no set design, no fixed purpose. 
He is swayed by sudden impulses, by the sudden urge of mindless frenzies, of insane lusts. I will protect you always. Curtin's oath sounded in his ears. Against Satan and all his imps. Protector! She was in the hands of a mad thing. His Hilda. Her rounded, warm body, her soft curves. Prisoner to a thing half-human, perhaps. Perhaps all beast, subject to his whims. His will. Find her! Save her! Save her before it's too late from... Curtin's mind shuddered away from thoughts of the peril his loved one was in. Find her! But where? How? Gast knew! He whirled around to dash out to Gast, to choke the truth from him, to tear him limb from limb if he would not give it. It would take time, valuable time. Hilda's captain could not have gotten far as yet. By the time he dragged the truth from Redden Gast, they would be God knew how far away. God knew what would have occurred before he could reach them, but he had no choice. Wait! Once more the tortured man recalled his own words, more recently spoken. Those puffballs, Rogetz's wood, that's where his lair is. I'll take you there. Rogetz's wood! Five miles across the field! But they were gone, only ten minutes, fifteen at most. That was all it was since Gus had left Wayne's. If he went after them at once, no time to get help, no time to get a weapon, he might overtake them. Might reach the madman's lair. At least, before. How Curtin whirled again, when sprinting out of the kitchen door, out into the lonely night. How Curtin never knew how long it took him to run those five lightless miles over rough fields, up hills that became mountains in the dark, splashing through streams, sliding, gasping, torn by his own breathing, torn by thorns of berry bushes, by barbed wires unseen, till he was upon it. But he raced through, a featureless chiaroscuro of shadows, Feeling his hurt not at all, feeling not at all that the clothes were torn from him, that he was lacerated and bleeding, that an iron band was about his chest, and the hammering of hell beating upon his skull. And this is where we'll stop for now. The finale is next week, mates.